Welcome to the fifth episode of Knox County Public Library and the City of Knoxville's Brown Bag Green Book podcast. In this recording, Ben Epperson, coordinator of Beardsley Community Farm, discusses Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life, by Barbara King Solver. I just wanted to say one word uh, before starting this. Uh, the library probably is one of the earliest green agencies around. We circulate materials. I mean, how much greener can you get than that? Uh, from the get-go, we're, we have been in the recycling business. People donate books to us. We recycle those books. And I guess you could say we recycle knowledge and try to transform that knowledge and bring it up to date. So this is very exciting for us because this is something that's very dear to us. And I'm so very happy that Emily has put this together. So welcome on behalf of the Knox County Public Library. Thank you. And hi, I'm Erin Burns, and I'm with the city, and we have partnered with Knox County. They approached us about this series, and it has been a tremendous success. So uh, month after month, I'm very pleased to see such a great crowd, and I'm happy that you all came out today. And I think we have a very interesting discussion ahead of us. Ben Epperson is the director of Beardsley Community Farm, which is really leading our community in community agriculture. And it's, one of, it's the only demonstration of urban agriculture in the city of Knoxville. And its goal is to grow and promote healthy food for city neighborhoods through gardening, nutritional, environmental services, and education. Um, They're really playing a role in not only teaching people how to grow their own food, but really in rebuilding and strengthening a community. They're located in Mechanicsville. Um, We all know that's kind of a lower-income area of our town, and he's really been able to engage his community and teach them a valuable skill, but also kind of the valuable um, community-building activity and, and give them that opportunity to get involved with this. Community agriculture is a growing trend, um, and, and so we're very pleased to have this in Knoxville. And I uh, think Ben's going to do a great job of leading this discussion about how Barbara Kingsolver approached local agriculture and community foods. So thank you, Ben, for coming, and thank you all for coming as well. My name is Ben Epperson. I'm the director of Beardsley Community Farm, like she said. I wanted to talk a little bit about the book, have a very short book discussion, but then a much longer discussion about what we're doing, what Beards of Community Farm is doing, and then what all of us together can do to kind of uplift our food culture. So Animal Vegetable Miracle, the subtitle is A Year of Food Life, and it's Barbara King Solver and her family's memoir of how they moved from Arizona to Appalachia and how they switched food cultures from the food culture of Arizona to the food culture of Appalachia, or the industrial food culture to a more local whole food culture. There's a number of reasons she did this. One, she just wanted to be near her family. Her uh, husband had this farm, which sounds amazing. I want to go live there with him. And she also wanted to switch from Arizona to Appalachia because of the problems she was seeing presently in Arizona, and then the problems she foresaw for the future of Arizona and its food culture, namely that the food supply train is totally unsustainable. It's, imagine, millions of people in a desert eating food all the time. And where does that food come from? Well, it doesn't come from the desert, obviously, and if it does, it's using a bunch of water that is not the deserts. Um, So everything's being trucked in from everywhere, and um, 
those supply chains require an enormous amount of fuel for packaging and moving things and refrigerating things and and all of this. So um, she talks about it, and her husband, Stephen Hopp, talks about it quite a bit, about how basically our food culture right now is run on fossil fuels and not on sunlight. Uh, everyone's heard of Michael Pollan by this point. Michael Pollan talks a lot about this, about re-solarizing our food culture. So from Arizona to Appalachia, from the industrial food culture to the local whole food culture. Now, Slow Food Knoxville, Miss Sarah Bush was here. Is Sarah here today? She'll be here, I'm sure. Slow food is the opposite of fast food. Miss um, Kingsolver talks a little bit about it in this book, about how slow food started the first time McDonald's came into Rome in Italy. There was an enormous meeting of people outside, and they were really shocked and appalled that um, this other big country was exporting their um, food culture that they didn't appreciate. And so they all got around to kind of boycott and talk and stuff like that. And that's how slow food started, was the opposite of fast food. So what is the opposite of fast food? Well, it means cooking it yourself, possibly even growing it yourself. Um, If you're growing it yourself, you're going to be growing it during the summer times. You're going to need to store it somewhere. So that's canning and preserving and stuff like that. And all of these things together kind of make up what is known as a food culture, not just you know places you go to eat or things that you eat, but everything that goes into the food. And so she wanted to change that for her family, and she decided to try it for a year, her and her husband and her daughters, to see if not only could they grow their own food, but could they run their household in such a fashion that they weren't going to need any outside inputs. Um, Obviously, this is not 100% feasible. It wasn't 100% feasible for the King Solver family, and it's not 100% feasible for us. They bought flour. They bought coffee. She says she had some Kraft mac and cheese for when the kids' friends came over because that's the only thing they would ever eat. But they did a lot of things right, a whole lot of things right. And the book moves from one spring all the way through the year to another spring. And um, it talks about, you know, the foods that come up out of the ground in certain seasons and what you do with those foods. And if they come up really, really quickly, but you want to, you know, eat them in the fall, so you want basil in January, there's a way to do that. You grow basil and you harvest it in August and then you turn it into pesto or you dry it or you freeze it and you... You save it. Um, there are a number of really cool things that her and her family did that are some of my favorite things. And they're all possible in one way or another. One is heirloom vegetables. Heirloom vegetables are vegetables that have been grown for their particular properties year after year after year after year. And the way this is possible is, say, you take a tomato seed that your grandmother gives you. And it's grown because it's delicious and it has a beautiful color and it's disease and pest resistant. So you take that seed and you plant it in the ground. It turns into a tomato. Then you pick that tomato and you save that seed. And the next year you plant it in the ground over and over and over again. There are lots of organizations. The book talks about uh, the Seed Savers Exchange that does this and has been doing it for at least over 100 years. Um, They've gotten old heirloom varieties and they try to save that type of vegetable or flower or whatever it is year after year after year after year. Um, One, so we can 
control our own food. We know exactly what we're growing. People have done it for generations. We know what that tomato is going to look like, what it's going to taste like, how we can preserve it, whether it's good for canning or good for cooking or whatever. So to control our food and also to save money. Um, she talks a lot about saving money towards the end of the book. So heirloom vegetables, seed saving, local sources. Um, she said that basically the most sustainable thing you can do or one sustainable thing you can do is draw a 100-mile or 50-mile radius around yourself on the map. And so for 100 square miles, basically, try to get all your food from there. We're really lucky, and she was really lucky, that she was living in Appalachia. We have a 10-month growing season. We can basically grow from February to November. And so that's a relatively e- well easy thing to do. It's a good thing to start thinking about. Seasonal eating was another big part, and that's how the book is laid out. First is asparagus. Asparagus is one of the first things to come up. And she talks about the vegetannual, how we can think about all the food we eat as growing off of one really enormous plant. And so at the beginning of the year, you start with the sprouts and the little shoots, and then you move on to, so sprouts and shoots, uh, asparagus, for example, and then you move on to um, small leaves like spinach and lettuce. You go into larger leaves, kale, chard. You can even get into flowers, and from flowers come fruits, um, small fruits like cucumbers, and then larger after that is tomatoes, and then even larger after that, large fruits like pumpkins and gourds and squash, and then finally, your root crops. And um, all vegetables work this way. They come up at a certain time, and they die back at a certain time, and they're used to the sun, um, you know, rising and setting, rising and setting year after year. And so a good way to think about sustainable food culture and sustainable eating practices is to eat what's coming out of the ground where you live. She talks a lot about strategic planning, canning, saving, and things like that. It's a memoir. It's not exactly a how-to manual. It doesn't tell you everything you need to do to start your garden and to live off of your garden, but it tells you everything that she did to try to start. And there's a lot of really good um, things that I learned. Uh, The turkey breeding was especially... Uh, informative and, and fun to read about. The recipes um, by Camille King-Solver were really great. I'm going to try a lot of those. There's a um, zucchini cookie in here that I've already tried. This is really excellent. So the recipes were good. Um, the instructions on how to do things, how to can, how to seed save. One of my favorite parts was um, the little sidebars by her husband, Stephen Hopp. Um, he seems to have a really good head for numbers. And so while she was giving a memoir, basically an emotional and psychological memoir of what they were doing and how they were doing it, um, Stephen went through and did the why, why our culture should start thinking about this and why they thought about it and the numbers that show, wow, we're spending an enormous amount of fuel on our food or um, animals in factories can be really kind of bad. Um, and then the whole thing, the whole thing is about building culture. It's not just about one family. It is just about one family, but how that family integrates itself into the families that surround it and the communities that surround that and the cities that surround that and um, how you can stay connected and know where your food's coming from, where it's going, and why that's a good thing. 
If we believe that our food culture has some problems, which I do believe our food culture has some problems, then, then what can we do? I guess first let's talk about why I believe American food culture has problems. The number right now, since a study done in the 90s, was every plate of food you eat travels about 1,500 miles. That means that even in Appalachia, where we're living right now, where food can be abundant, we're still getting a lot of our food from California, Florida, Texas, Idaho, and that's just within the United States. Lots of things. Go to your um, fruit department in Kroger, and you'll see Chile, New Zealand, Costa Rica, crazy places. Food that must have been picked weeks ago, and then refrigerated, and then sent to a packaging plant, and then trucked, and then refrigerated, and then you get it, and then we refrigerate it, and by the time we have it, it's about three, four weeks old. So that's why most children think that tomatoes taste like cardboard. It's because those tomatoes taste like cardboard. They're not good tomatoes. They weren't grown to be delicious tomatoes. They weren't grown to be nutritious tomatoes. They were grown to be perfectly round, perfectly red, perfectly packageable tomatoes. So that's one, one problem is the distances. And I don't want to, it's not going to be all doom and gloom about how we're eating badly today. We'll talk about the problems and then we'll talk for a very long time about the solutions. Another large problem is the way in which it's grown. We're losing 300 family farms a year, and the number has probably grown recently, and that means that land around cities that was once owned by families that was used for those cities, to feed those cities, is now being bought up by large-scale industrial farms and then farmed without people, for the most part, just with machines. And it's a very efficient way to do things, but there's an enormous amount of waste, not only of the food that's wasted, but the um, fossil fuels that are wasted. Fertilizer is made out of natural gas. When you um, farm things with a, with a large tractor and large combines and things like this, you need to do all of one crop for acres and acres and acres and miles and miles and miles of one crop. And that's so you can just get in the tractor and let it run back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So you've got to fuel that tractor. But then, in order to grow just one crop, you have to protect it because an entire, you know, 70, 80 hectares of corn is going to have really big problems with pests and really big problems with diseases. It's a monoculture. The uh, potato famine in Ireland was one example of why we don't grow just one thing and one thing only for our sustenance is because when it gets hit by a disease, it can all be wiped out. And so industrial farmers have thought, okay, this is definitely going to happen. We're growing, you know, hundreds of square miles of one thing. We're going to get diseases. We're going to get pests. Well, what do we do? Well, we protect against the diseases with sprays, and we protect against the pests with poisons. And so that kills not only all the bugs and all the birds, the good bugs and the bad bugs, but also kills a lot of the microfauna and microflora, little creepy crawly things in the soil. And when your soil's not living, then you need to put something into the soil to make your plants live. And so that's fertilizer, usually an NPK fertilizer, um, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus. So we're dumping fuel into the soil to make the plants grow. We're dumping fuel um, all over the ground and in the air and all around the plants into the water systems to make sure the plants keep growing. And then we use the fuel to bring it across the country or across the globe to ourselves. And it's not going to be feasible for much longer unless there's lots of extra fuel underground that we don't know about and it becomes really, really cheap. And even if it does, it's causing 
erosion and poison and all these things. And that's my doom and gloom speech. So, But what can we do? Well, there's a number of things. We can do what we're doing right now. We're eating food from the farmer's market. There's a farmer's market outside. That's an enormous first step. The Market Square District Association with uh, Charlotte Tolley and the Market Square Farmer's Market have handed us an enormous boon of doing the, the work to network farmers. Tell farmers, these people will be here. They want your food. Grow as much of it as possible. And they'll come and buy it. And year after year, it's growing and it's growing. And so we can actually now find food that's grown in our region, not only our region, but in our town, outside of our town, um, Maryville and things like that. That's a huge thing that we're doing. When we do that, when we go to farmer's markets, we're not only buying what's grown locally, but we're buying what's grown seasonally. And that's really important. Strawberries don't grow in December. Kiwis don't grow here ever. But enough food grows here to sustain us. A lot of the foods that we, um, or a lot of the food cultures we really enjoy, French cooking and Italian cooking and Chinese, they have their own culture based around their recipes because that's what grows in their region. You know, Italian food has a lot of tomato sauce in it because they can grow and do grow a lot of tomatoes. They can grow a lot of basil, stuff like that. Not only buying locally, but buying seasonally is another really big thing we can do. So that means, you know, when you go to the farmer's market, don't just buy tomatoes for today, or don't just buy tomatoes for the week. Buy tomatoes for December. Buy tomatoes for February, the hungry month. Um, Other things we can do to kind of combat our industrial food culture and help to uplift our local sustainable whole food culture is um, donate to your local community garden. (coughs) I'm only half joking. Um... A big step that I've started making, um, my family has started making, is avoid the center of the supermarket. The walls of the supermarket, imagine walking into a food city. You've got your vegetables and your fruits over here, and then you've got your breads, and then you've got your meats, and then you have your dairy products and your juices. And that's what grocery stores used to be like when they were first starting out. All that stuff in the middle is corn and soybeans, all of it. It's all processed. So take a box from the middle of the supermarket and look at the ingredients. Let's say you've got uh, wheat, corn, barley, sugar, um, fruit juices, whatever, whatever goes into it. Those, aren't, those weren't all grown in the plant where the thing was made. One was grown over here, and one was grown over there, and one was grown in Texas, and one was grown in Oregon, and one was grown in New Zealand. And then they all carted it there. And then they put it into its constituent parts, and then they packaged it, and then they carted it somewhere else. So all of the processed food in the middle, just try it. See if you can survive on the outside of the supermarket for a week. Um, I bet you can. They do, yeah. The beers, beer is, um, beers hops, it's a really, it's a really good way of keeping hops, uh, storing it for a long time. All these things um, are contributing to help building a culture of food. I remember asking my, um, my mother when I was little, because we'd go to an Italian restaurant, we'd go to a Mexican restaurant, we go, but there's no American restaurants, you know? I said, Mom, what's American food? And she's like, well, 
corn dogs <laughs> and hamburgers and chips, Coca-Cola. But, um, I mean, America's a big place. You can't have one American food because Tennessee food is different from Arizona food, you know, which is different from Washington State food and it's different from New York food. But you can have regional foods. We have our soul food here. We have our country cooking here, and that's, that's good enough. It's good enough to build a food culture around. We can grow enough food here to build an entire food culture around it. We can grow a bunch of stuff. Another thing we can do, and this is what I'm really, really interested in, is growing food in the city. It's possible. It's really, really possible to grow food around your city. We're doing it with our farmer's markets, but it's totally possible to grow food within the city. We're pretty smart. Humans are pretty darn smart. We know which way's up. We know where the sun comes from. We know what plants need. And we have all of those things in the city if we manage them well. So that's what Beardsley is trying to do. I'll talk about Beardsley just a little bit. And then we can talk about kind of the future of our food culture. And I want to put an idea out there to you. And I want you to shoot as many holes in it as possible. And then I'll, we'll, I'll go back to the drawing board and, and see where we are in a year's time. But um, let's talk about Beardsley. It was started about 10 years ago in Mechanicsville. If you don't know where Beardsley Community Farm is located, it's on Western Avenue. Traveling away from downtown, you'll go through the Middlebrook Light, and then you go up the hill, and it's on Reynolds Street, across the street from the new Sentinel. And um, it was started because there were no grocery stores in that region. It's a low-income region with no fresh food. There's chips and funyuns and pork and beans in a can, but all of it was gas station food for years and years and years and years until 2007 when the food city moved in. So in 1998, there's an abandoned school um, called Beardsley Junior High School. It's been abandoned for a number of years. It's kind of a center for crime and nefarious activities of one sort or another. And um, so they tore the school down, and uh, Knox County Community Action Committee, along with a a grant from the USDA put together this program to start a community farm. And Beardsley was at first a way to feed these families. There's about eight acres of park space in Malcolm Martin Park where we're located. And originally, we just filled it. We filled it full of food. Every arable space of land was doing corn and blueberries, raspberries, beans, things like this. And um, it worked a little bit. It produced an enormous amount of food, and, and Beardsley was able to donate a lot of food. But it's hard to manage that space with a couple of volunteers or a couple of AmeriCorps members. And um, management did a really good job at that time, and then it fell off for a little bit. And so um, we've changed. We've changed in the last two years, and we've changed in the last five years from what we're doing now. Instead of just grabbing all the land we can and growing as much food and giving it away or letting people come glean and pick it, We've decided to kind of get a little bit smaller and a little bit more organized. And so now we have two things. We have our urban demonstration farm and our community gardens. Community gardens are doing the space in the, in the parks. We give away land so people can come and get a little plot of land, about 10 feet by 10 feet, and grow their own food if they wish. Say they live in an apartment where they don't have land or they're renting and they can't cut their yard up, though I encourage you to do so. And, uh, or they just like being around other gardeners. So we've got about 29 plots, and, and that is all community-run. And we give seed and tools and water um, and plant transplants to those people, but they run it themselves. And 
I'll give them a call about once a week if things aren't weeded, but that's about it. And then we have an urban demonstration farm, and that's where we've really focused a lot of our growth this year. And what we are now is um, people come. It's all volunteer-run. We produce about 3,000 pounds of food a year. It's well-diversified. We grow things year-round, like I said, from February to November. Um, and we donate it all to our volunteers and then to charitable organizations. And we also go into schools and teach a little bit, and people come out and ask questions. We answer a lot of phone calls. We do a lot of blogging. Any way to get information out about how to grow your own food. And we've got visions for the future, and it's these visions for the future that I want to tell you about and then possible crazy ideas that we can all, we can all talk about. Um, in the five-year plan for Beardsley is... First, we need a bathroom. <laughs> next, um, next, we're going to get a kitchen, though. Bathroom and kitchen go hand in hand. If you're teaching people how to grow food and you're supplying low-income families with fresh food, the next thing you need to do is tell them what to do with it. We've lost a lot of knowledge just in a generation's time about how tomato, onion, basil, and oregano turns into, into tomato sauce. A lot of people don't know how to do it. So one of our visions is a kitchen cooking tutorials, canning tutorials, things like that. And the one I really want to talk about, and the one I'm just now getting on board with, is trying our hand at intensive, small plot, sustainable, intensive farms. Basically, um, we've got a little bit of land that's been given to us. We want to put up some greenhouses, and we want to see if we can start providing local businesses with one or two things. Even if it's perennials like rosemary or just herbs, if there are a couple businesses in town that just need herbs, or um, if we had greenhouses, we could grow vegetables year-round. We've got a project right now where we're growing fish and vegetables in the same system. Um, we just finished building it and testing it yesterday, and so now it's up and running. We're going to add the fish tomorrow. There are people doing this on a large scale. We're growing about 25 fish and about um, maybe 15 heads of lettuce and some watercress and some basil, all in a contained system that's about as tall as I am and about this wide. And it works really well. There are people doing it with 500 fish and 100-foot-long greenhouses, um, providing not only herbs and greens and fish, but... Um, really large vegetables, and it's all done hydroponically and stuff like that. There are two people I'd like to mention that are doing this right now, and it's, it's really incredible. One is the Intervale Center in Burlington, Vermont. Vermont is like the promised land. It's awesome. Uh, you can go to intervale.org and, and check out them. Um, they, I'd like to set up Beardsley to be kind of like the Intervale Center, They've got a food enterprise center, which is a processing plant. So farmers from all around the city, in the city and around the city, can come and can things to um, extend their season, season that they can sell things, and also to create other value-added products like pesto. She talks a lot about pesto in the book. They've also got um, an agricultural development service. Um, it brings a bunch of farms together into a CSA. Do you want to know what a CSA is? Community-supported agriculture. It basically means... Um, a family gives their money up front or weekly to a farm, and the farm promises to provide fresh, seasonal, usually organic, local produce 
weekly. You get a little box of whatever's growing. So springtime, you get asparagus and greens. And summertime, you get more tomatoes than you know what to do with and even more squash. And then in wintertime, you get gourds and, yeah, zucchini. If anyone knows how to build a house out of zucchini, please tell me. Um, So they create a multi-farm CSA. They lease land to gardeners. They provide technical support and networking and business planning. I, I suggest you look at Intervale Center. And if anyone picked up the Sunday New York Times last Sunday and you got past the crossword puzzle, in the Sunday New York Times magazine is an article on Will Allen, who started Growing Power. And it's from Growing Power that we've gotten a lot of our new ideas about... It's growingpower.org. Gotten a lot of our new ideas about worm composting. Um, Will Allen, he pulls in, what is it? It's about 30,000 tons of food waste a year in the center of Chicago and turns it back into soil using worms and composting materials. He's got livestock. He's got bees. He's the one who has this huge aquaponic system with the fish over here and the hydroponic beds here, and it's a circular system, so you don't need to add anything but fish food ever, stuff like that. So those are two, two organizations, both up north, not in the Eden-like climate we have here, that are doing enormous things in the center of the city. I'd like to work towards that for Beardsley, and we are working towards it. We've built our worm composting system, and that started. We've got our fish growing, and, and that started. But um, I want to talk more about how we can live our lives in a way just little tiny, itty-bitty little steps we can make in the right direction for ourselves and for our community in order to create um, an East Tennessee, a a southeastern United States food culture. I think that's what Animal Vegetable Miracle does. It shows how one family can create their own culture. In the end of the book, they don't go back to eating, uh, you know, just drinking corn syrup every night before bed or anything. They actually... She's continuing to can, and she really likes cooking, and, you know, her family really likes it, so it wasn't too tortuous. They're, they're actually continuing doing what they tried to do, and each little step that we make, we might find that we like it, and we might find that other people will like it, and that we can pass it on to our children, like things like this have been passed on year in and year out and year in and year out. Does anyone have a little garden plot in their house right now? A couple of garden plots? Does anybody's, did anyone's parents grow their own food? Did anybody's grandparents grow their own food? So it's possible. We're only two generations removed from every person in the room growing their own food, you know? Um, A lot of people's grandparents are still alive, and a lot of people's parents are still alive. And if they're not, they know some old people. I mean, we know some old people that are still alive, and some young people that are are doing just what Barbara Kingsolver is doing. I guess... um, I recommend the book. There are a couple of little problems with it. She talks a lot about harvesting and canning and growing and the culture. She never talked about pests or diseases. All of her plants are miracle plants that never needed any. All they needed was um, weeding and and watering. So I'd like to know what she did for that. Um, I'm sure I can email and, and find out what her pest strategies are. There are an enormous number of organic and sustainable practices for keeping pests and diseases down. You can always call us at Beardsley Farm if you're interested in those. Secondly, we can't all jump into something like this. I mean, we're not, we're not all Barbara King Solver. We can't all work from home. So, I mean, we have to go out. We have to work our jobs. We have to bring money home. But there are ways of doing little things that she does 
that will make our lives easier, it'll save us money, it'll definitely make us healthier, and it'll probably make everyone around us healthier. If you want to know more about the things we're talking about, just turn to the last four pages. The, um, the sidebar resources section is really incredible. It has a lot of information about slow food and whole foods and farmer's markets and growing your own stuff and canning and putting food by and all the things that Stephen Hopp talks about. So I recommend it. It's a good book. That was Brown Bag Green Book, Episode 5, sponsored by Knox County Public Library and the City of Knoxville. Food for the lunchtime meeting was donated by the Market Square Farmer's Market, Tomato Head Restaurant, and Slow Food Knoxville, and we thank them for their generosity. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, copyright 2009, by Knox County Public Library. To find more library podcasts, please visit knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.